Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is our 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everyone. Well, tonight's story takes place in Newcomerstown, a village in Tuscarawas County on the banks of the Tuscarawas River, a factory town in the Appalachian foothills. It was Susan Wolfe's hometown, where she grew up, where she became head majorette for the high school's marching Trojan band, where she married her high school sweetheart in her senior year and became a mom. In 1982, Susan was approaching her 20th birthday. Her husband, Alan Kappel, was 22 years old and an inspector for the Ohio State Department of Transportation. The couple had been living in an apartment in Bolivar, but the marriage was a troubled one. Two years after exchanging vows and just 18 months after Susan gave birth to the couple's only child, Alan Kappel filed for divorce and was granted temporary custody of their son, Damon. In January of 1982, Susan moved out of their apartment and moved back in with her parents. She showed up at their doorstep with nothing more than the clothes on her back. Susan picked up two part-time jobs, working two nights a week at Timken Mercy Hospital in Canton and other days at the local Thompson's IGA grocery store. She also got an attorney to help her fight for custody rights. The current order gave Alan Kappel all control of when she got to see her son, and he had been denying her visitation. Hoping for the best, Susan bought some light green paint for the bedroom she wanted to share with Damon if she got to share custody of him again. It was the same room she had grown up in. She put the first coat of paint on, then slid the cans beneath the baby bed, intending to apply a second and final coat the next day. She was in good spirits when she woke the next morning, March 16, and prepared for work. The child custody hearing, which had been postponed three times, was now set for April 6. She told a friend that day, I see the light at the end of the tunnel. At 3.30 p.m., Susan left for work. She was behind the deli counter at the IGA when her father stopped in at 6 p.m. to pick up some food for supper. Her shift ended at 9 p.m., and Susan left the store, headed for her car, but she was intercepted. A co-worker watched as an older model cut. A co-worker watched as an older model blue car pulled into the parking lot and cut her off. Susan went to the car, spoke to the driver, then got in on the passenger side. And that's when Susan Wolf Kappel drove off into oblivion. Back at home, Judy Wolf waited up all night for her daughter's footsteps. When she wasn't home by the next day, she called police. Investigators found very little to go on. The co-worker who saw Susan last couldn't identify the blue car or its driver, except to say it was a man. The co-worker even agreed to go under hypnosis to no avail. The day after his daughter vanished, police told James Wolfe to take their car home. It was still in the parking lot at the IGA. 
The small community was divided on whether Susan met with foul play or walked away from her life. Police seemed to think both theories were plausible. There was never any community search for Susan. Susan's parents thought it unlikely she had left on her own since she seemed happy that day, had just had good news about the hearing date, and gave no indication of anything out of the ordinary when her dad chatted with her at the store. It seemed unfathomable that she would simply give up on her baby and leave without taking any clothes or her purse or ID. She never even collected her final paycheck from either of her employers. But then again, she was a young new mother with a broken marriage and a very complicated life, and the bitter feud with her husband made her increasingly depressed. Her mom admitted it was easier to hope she was a runaway. There are times when I would like to think she ran off, Judy Wolf told a reporter back in 1983, and I'm hoping and praying she did. She had been through an awful lot of stress. Who's to say she just didn't say, I've had it? There were alternate theories, of course. Could she have been killed? Her remains now part of the landscape of the rugged Ohio River Valley countryside, maybe in one of the deep pits or strip mines that dotted the area. If a spouse goes missing during a bitter divorce and custody battle, a lot of eyes are going to turn toward the surviving spouse. Alan Kappel denied having anything to do with Susan's disappearance. Through an attorney, he told reporters he hadn't seen or heard from his wife since the day she disappeared, but that he suspected she'd gone willingly and would resurface when she was ready. Others wondered if Alan Kappel knew more than he was saying. One theory was that Alan had two friends, cousins Patrick and Robert Parrish, who might have played some kind of role. Patrick owned an older model blue Plymouth satellite. Susan's family speculated that Parrish's might have threatened baby Damon's life so that she would agree to disappear in order to keep him safe. Or... Maybe they found a more permanent way of solving their friend's custody problems. But the window in which investigators could have pursued this idea was very short. Because on March 31, just two weeks after Susan disappeared, the parishes were killed in a single car accident, along with a third friend, when their vehicle slammed into a bridge abutment in Eurexville. The summer of 1982, a grand jury investigation was conducted on the case, but nothing significant turned up. Those records, by the way, were eventually misplaced and at least as of 2016 had not been found. Life was moving on for everyone but Judy and James Wolfe. Every night, the porch light on the Wolfe home continued to cut through the darkness. They left it on a symbolic light to guide their daughter home, vowing never to turn it off until she returned. Dinah move I don't think I've ever heard before. Newcomer's Town Police Chief John Lawver, who lived one block from the Wolves, wrote a letter to the editor of the local paper apologizing to the town for not having cracked this case. I felt bad I wasn't able to find her, he explained to a reporter. 
I've been a police officer for 34 years, and this is the only one I've been unable to solve. It bothers me. When she walked away, that was the end of anybody seeing her. There was one moment in 1983 when police had reason to hope. A Greyhound bus driver came forward to say he thought he saw Susan. He said the woman purchased a ticket from Reno, Nevada to Newcomerstown, and he picked her up in Cleveland. Once in Newcomerstown, she had asked to be dropped off at a filling station, but he told her he couldn't. He had to take her to the bus station, and as soon as she exited the bus, she headed for that filling station. The driver reported the sighting to the police immediately, but a search of the area failed to turn up the woman that he had seen. Interestingly, the filling station where the woman wanted to be dropped off was the same one where Patrick Parrish worked before his death. So was she a runaway? Was there murder here? A suicide? James and Judy Wolf didn't have the luxury of focusing on just one theory. They had to explore them all. They hired a private investigator. They took road trips to New Jersey and Las Vegas. I even found a story in the St. Petersburg Times on Mother's Day in 1983. Now, that was more than a year after Susan disappeared, where the newspaper did a feature about the fact that Susan's uncle had come to Florida to pass out flyers. The copies of typing paper with black letters stenciled on and an image of a smiling Susan implored local residents to report if they had seen her. It went up in post offices all over that area of Florida with the large words, Missing Mom, next to wanted posters of bank robbers. St. Petersburg is 900 miles from where Susan vanished, but a few weeks before then, there had been reports that she was seen in Pinellas County, Newport Ritchie, and Tampa. They couldn't be confirmed. But also, shortly after Susan vanished, an old scrap of paper was found in her jewelry box that contained the name and address of a student at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg. When the student was home on college break, Susan had been friendly with him at a disco near Newcomerstown. But the student was questioned by police and said he couldn't recall having met her. Judy said after Susan's disappearance, she and her husband were allowed to spend a few hours with their grandson on every other Sunday. They described him as a sandy-haired toddler who was learning his ABCs and had learned to count to 13 milestones their daughter was missing they would later go on to lobby for the rights of grandparents even testifying before legislative committees it wasn't until christmas day 2014 some 32 years after susan's disappearance that her parents finally sought to declare her dead it was a legal end to their nightmare but in no way had they given up hoping to learn one day what happened to her. While this case always left open the possibility Susan left on her own, the more the years passed, the harder it was for people to believe Susan would have continued to live her life without attempting to see her son. But if Alan Kappel had any idea what happened to his wife, we'll never know. His divorce to Susan was granted in 1983, the year after she disappeared, and he remarried a few months later. He remained with the Ohio Department of Transportation for the next 24 years, 
In September of 2003, he was inspecting a highway work zone in Tuscarawas County with two other ODOT employees when the parked vehicle they were in was struck by a motorist. The impact killed one co-worker immediately, injured the other, and Cappell died soon after at the hospital. He was 42 years old. In 2006, the Kentucky Society of Professional Investigators, that's a team of retired law enforcement officers as well as military and private detectives, took up Susan's cause. They even followed a tip to a cave in Gilmore where they crawled through the dark space in search of her remains. They even followed a tip to a cave in Gilmore where they crawled through the dark space in search of her remains. Billboard space on Route 250 was donated, and for weeks it displayed Susan's image and a reward of $20,000 that was being offered by the wolves. But those efforts fell short, and Susan's disappearance is still a mystery. By mere coincidence, the highway where Susan's billboard went up bore her ex-husband's name. After the roadside accident that took their lives, the state had renamed the local stretch, the John Webb and Allen Cappell Memorial Highway. That's it for our midweek 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, and may all of your mysteries have happy endings. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.